Alright guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of 1 Peter. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 2 as we were dealing with the beginnings of Peter's uh, practical teaching. That is, and if you recall, one of the reasons why I like uh, the book of 1 Peter in the first place is that it gives the practical teaching of how we should live in this present world, especially in times of suffering. But anyway, so the last time we were here in chapter two, we were basically beginning that particular section as it opened up with dealing with the honoring of government leaders and those who have been sent by them. And that is, we constantly see a particular word that is being used here. And I cannot overemphasize the usage of a particular word, hupatasso, that is being used in each section as Peter speaks to Christians, that namely these Jewish Christians who are living amongst these Gentiles. Okay, but hupatasso, which means to submit yourself willingly, and it is a military term. But anyway, so we were dealing with that issue of honoring government leaders, how Christians should always be submissive to their leaders in government. And then he began, Peter began to be a little bit more domesticated in that he talks about how the slaves should respond to their masters. And the point is that slaves should also, hupatasso, be submissive to their masters. And one of the primary points that Peter opens up for us here is, even to such masters who are cruel and don't treat them right. And this opens the gate. So listen to me, guys. This opens the gate to the remainder of the chapter. And also as we get into chapter three, this opens the gate to the remainder of the uh, those exaltations that Peter would give in the sense that he is uh, commanding them to be obedient in some respect or another. But the point was not only to the masters who treat them good and treat them well should slaves be obedient, but the slaves should also be obedient to the masters who are harsh, austere, and who mistreat them. And this becomes one of the foundation. Matter of fact, this is the foundation for the book of First Peter. Living a godly life, how to practice living a godly life in an ungodly world, a world that persecutes, okay? And in the whole same sense as in the world that is watching you, because notice what Peter said as to these particular Jewish Christians, as you go out amongst the Gentiles. And the idea of all of that is in an unbelieving world, we should exemplify righteous and holy lives in the sight of God and in the sight of the world itself. And then he ended that particular chapter and talked about, for this is the example of Jesus Christ, so that no one, that is, since he was talking about slaves, uh, uh, and the slaves should submit willingly to the masters, even if their masters are difficult masters and masters that are harsh and even mistreat them, he says, for you have the same example from Jesus and how he lived. And notice what it said about Jesus, what Peter says, how Jesus himself is that perfect godly individual, but nevertheless, he suffered 
having done no wrong. So therefore, Jesus left us as an, an example that we also too should do what? We should be willing to suffer having done no wrong, but nevertheless having our conduct approved before God. And the way he left that was in the sense that as God himself is looking down from heaven at the behavior of the Christian believer, even in a stressful a stressful situation, somebody's mistreating them and uh, uh, mishandling them in some way, and God is approving the behavior of his son or daughter under such circumstances. And that's the very idea of the letter of Peter. So I cannot stress this enough that we need to keep this in mind as we continue on through the next section, primarily chapter three. And we're going to try to see if we can finish all of chapter three. I know I can be sometimes lengthy, but I'm going to try to be a little bit more succinct in this teachings here. But we have to keep that in mind as we work through the remainder of all of this teaching. That is, so remember what? How the Christian should behave under some sort of distress of mistreatment. You're being mistreated, but nevertheless, God design, God desires for you to still act in a way that pleases him. And in that way that pleases him, one of the things that you understand is this. It is not always an easy or a simple thing to do. And it is almost always contrary to your fleshly nature. You will not normally want to act in this manner. Okay. So now with that same idea, as we continue to move into chapter three and we start to get into the next practical section of how Peter is saying Christians should live. Okay. Just remember what he just said uh, to the slave, because that's where he literally left off from in context, how that the slaves should submit themselves to their masters, not only to the good and the kind, but to the ones who mistreat them, to the ones who do what? mistreat them. All right. So with all of that, now let's go into chapter three as we continue the next section. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Okay, so now we move into the next section. And notice what he says. And one of the key words that we'll see being used in the next two sections right here and in the following section, even as it relates to husbands, is that Greek word homoois, homoois. 
And that word is translated likewise or in the same way. So by using this particular word, homeois, uh, or as is correctly and beautifully translated in our NASB here, in the same way, in what way? In the same way as slaves are submissive to their masters, even to their masters who mistreat them. What? In the same way, what? You wives be submissive to your own husbands. And so the idea that he's bringing about here is, he's is even more so in a domestic sense. That is, Peter has now invaded the home life. And how should Christian women conduct themselves in the home? Christian women should be submissive to their own husband. And remember the whole idea of what Peter is talking about from the idea of his whole letter, from the idea even of the present context to the which Peter is moving through, what? Times when the husband does not treat you well. Just because the husband is not treating you as he should treat you, this does not give you an option or a reason to be disobedient. The commandments of the Lord remains the same. And remember, the whole tenor of this teaching is what? Even if they mistreat you, even if you must suffer and go back even earlier to what he just said about Jesus. Jesus left you an example of suffering and what you want your behavior to be approved by God so that when God looks at you in whatever that particular situation might be, God will say, I am pleased with your conduct. Why? Because your obedience is ultimately to God. What do I mean by that? It is God who sets the rules to life. God sets the standards to life, no matter what part of life that may be, life in the church, life without the church, life living in the world, God sets the order of life how he determines for things to be. So therefore, it is necessary for God's people to do what is pleasing in God's sight. Number one, even if they suffer, number two, even if they themselves have difficulty with it. And that's why we see, and let me say this, even notice what we'll see is this. We have six verses, six verses dedicated to the issue of the wives being submitted, being some in submission to their husband. And when we actually get to the issue dealing with the husband, we're going to only have one verse. So you need to ask yourself a question. Well, why is it six verses and talking about the submission of the wife and then just one verse in dealing with the, the attitude and behavior of the husband towards the wife? There is that difficulty that does exist within women. Now, we're not going to try to get into the exploration of all of these things. Actually, I did a video and why there is such difficulties between men and women. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I did a video about that. But the issue is there is a natural dif difficulty in that with women because of the fleshly nature, that is the sinful nature. But what is Peter saying? 
as godly women. So I tell you what, enough of my commentary with respect to that. Let me just simply work through the verse and the verse will explain the position of God himself. So notice what it says in the same way, in what? In the same way of suffering, even if you must suffer, still submit to your husband. This is God's own way. Be submissive to your own husband. And I like that too. Your own, because sometimes and I've even witnessed it for my own self. Women find it easier to be more submissive to another man than to their own husband. But the rule and order of God is to submit to your own husband. This is an unchanging rule. But notice what he continued to say. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word that is, it is not enough to say, watch this. Well, he's not saved. He's not Christian. He doesn't obey God. So why should I have to obey him? And here's where Peter comes against that type of a thinking. So that even if your husband is disobedient to the word of God, still the wife, the Christian wife should be in submission to their husband. To what end? To what end? At the end of the verse. So that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. In other words, they may be won. They may, so that the husband, and, 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 and without getting into a lot of commentary, because I know that this is so much difficulty that we have in this world, the interpersonal relationship. These are the worst of all, and these are the most trying things of all, because, you know, you, you be out there in the world for so long, but you leave outside that world and you come back to your own home. And the last place a person wants confusion and disorder is in their own homes. So I understand the difficulty of this. So I don't want to make a lot of um, definitional examples of it. But the point that he said is saying here is so that without a word from the wife, and this seems to bring in the sense of the wife's I don't want to use a strong term like nagging or complaining, but it is moving in that direction. So that the wife without getting on the husband back, you need to do this and you need to do that. And you ought to be doing this and you ought to be doing that. So without her saying anything to her husband, but carrying herself in that relationship with her husband, her husband is able to observe. And don't you ever forget, no matter what you think, People are watching you. Your husband is watching you. Your wife is watching you. And even if they never admit to fault, even if they never say that they are sorry, they are still aware of what's going on. They know you and they know how you do and they know why you do what you do. But let me continue. But the point that he's trying to make is what? That even without a word from the wife, you don't have to say anything to him, but simply live in an obedient manner to your husband. What happened? Hopefully in the end, this will win over your husband to Christ. So the testimony of a good wife, the witness, the witness of a wife to bring her husband to Christ is not her nagging, her moaning and complaining. The witness of a good wife to bring her husband to Christ is how she lives in submission and obedience to him. He recognizes this and he honors this fear 
of God that is in the woman. Okay. Notice that's what verse number two is all about. As they, what? The husband observes your chaste and respectful behavior. He sees how you're acting with him, but he knows that the reason why you're acting this way uh, to him is because of your love for your Lord. And so therefore, this draws him, hopefully, to God himself. Then he continues on because there is a natural tendency of women to want to appeal to men, even their husbands, even their husbands by the externalities, by being pretty. I, I, I've even heard the terminology that uh, I've heard women say that I'm eye candy and men want to have something pretty on their arms. But notice what Peter is saying. Your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of golden jewelry, or the putting on of dresses. In other words, what is truly attractive to a man is not just simply the outer appearance. It's not about how pretty you look, because let me tell you something about being pretty. It wears off. And let me tell you something about, you find this a lot of times, you know, you, you marry uh, uh, the woman and you get the girlfriend or whatever. And she's so beautiful and she's nice and thin. And then down the road, what happened? All of that pretty and the thinness began to dissipate with age. Or as the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, beauty is vain. And once again, what? Beauty is fading. So therefore, all of these external things are not of value at all. They're not of value in the eyes of God. And even on the deeper level, they are of a lesser value in the eyes of a husband. Because notice the whole context of what Peter is talking about here is what? The relationship between wives and their husband. But notice the point is, it's not about all of that external stuff, but what is the most important thing? What is the most beautiful thing about a woman? Notice what he says, verse number four, it is be, let it be that what hidden person in the heart that is imperishable. Notice that idea of imperishable, unlike the old, uh, unlike the beautiful skin in the youth and all of the vigor of the youth, it perishes, it wears away. But that hidden and beautiful and godly woman and that submissive woman in this context is what? Imperishable quality and notice the spirit, not a loud contemptuous woman, not a rebellious woman, not a woman who talks back to her husband, but what? Notice what the scripture says. One who is gentle and has a quiet spirit. And tell me about a woman like that. In the world, such a woman is looked down upon. Now, I want you guys to just give a little time to think about the literal political environment that we have about concerning women in this world, the character of women. And you always hear this stupid terminology about women being strong. And they simply means women being loud, rebellious, boisterous, and self-willed. Everything that God hates. And notice, this is not what the Bible calls a Proverbs 31 woman. Who can find a virtuous woman for such a woman, a virtuous woman, her price, her value is far above 
all material goods. But, but let's go back. But tell me about this particular woman who is not so much as vain in her appearance. It's not about what she looks like. Notice what he said about the braiding the hair and the wearing the gold. It's not about trying to put on the show. It's not about trying to be the eye candy. It's not about all of the smart words and the smart lips, but the one who has the meek and quiet spirit. What did it say? Which this type is of a precious, is precious in the sight of God. So any Christian woman, again, remember what we said earlier as we were opening up the introduction in this video, the idea, the mindset for any Christian is to be approved of God and especially to be approved of God under difficult circumstances. So if you have a bellicose husband who is difficult, but nevertheless, the woman, according to the written word of God, has what? A quiet spirit of submission, even to that loud mouth man. What did the Bible say? This is precious in the sight of God. God is looking down from heaven and approving such behavior, not the behavior of the man, but he is approving the behavior of his daughter who is doing what he has commanded her to do. But anyway, and then he gives the example, Peter does, in verses number five and six, because he compares such behavior to what this is, what this was about behavior of the holy women of old. And remember, even as Peter said earlier in this epistle, for the commandment of God for, of his people is to do what? To be holy. Why? Because God is holy. And so now as he speaks to the women to be in submission to their husband, even if they have difficult husband, he says, why? Because the holy women, women who were saved in the old times also behave themselves in like manner. And notice, former times, the holy women who hoped in God. Now, I like that part. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because the video is going to be a little bit longer than what I had intended for it to be. But who hoped in God? In other words, sometimes you find in difficult situations and difficult marriages and difficult husbands. And it's not always easy. Well, bottom line, it's not, not always easy. It's never easy. But nevertheless, your hope is not in the situation. Your hope is not in your marriage. Your hope is not in things will get better. Your hope ultimately is in God. You see, you got to remember, even as Peter talked about this early on in chapter one, we are not living our lives for the satisfaction on this earth. We are living our lives for a greater satisfaction so that when Jesus appears, he might say to us, well done. And wise, so are you. You are living your lives in this way so that when the Lord appears, he may say unto you, well done, and grant you many of the blessings that he has reserved for those who are obedient to his word. But nevertheless, as he continues on with the example, he is now dealing with one in particular, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And that's when he said, just as once again, that example of obedience or holy women who were submissive to their husband, just as Sarah obeyed 
Abraham and Sarah will be the mother of all believing women. And since we understand that this letter is particularly written to Jewish uh, Christians, we understand even more so how significant that this is to be the daughters of Sarah, that you are, the Sarah is your mother. Kind of like Abraham as the father of faith and Sarah would be the mother of the faithful women here. And just as Sarah did what? Sarah in like ways called obeyed Abraham. And that's the very essence of what he is saying to Christian women. Obey your husband, even if it's difficult, just like Sarah obeyed Abraham. Once again, what? Calling him Lord. And we see this when, when uh, God made a visitation to, to uh, Abraham and Sarah, and he revealed to Abraham and to Sarah that she would have a child. And Sarah responded, shall I have pleasure of my Lord? And so Sarah <laughs> called Abraham her Lord, Adonai, Adonai, Adonai. She called Abraham Adonai my Lord, so in the sense of giving him a title. Now, what you have to understand is this, Sarah was Abraham's wife, but notice the element, notice the greatness of respect that Sarah gave him. She did not say, call Abraham my husband. She said, my Lord. And what Peter is bringing out here is the respect that Sarah had for her own husband. So, as your mother in the faith had obeyed her husband and had respect for her husband, you too, Christian women, have respect for your husband and obey him just as well. And then he continues on and says, uh, and you have become her children, that is, be like your mother, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So in other words, but don't worry about it. You know, even if it doesn't work out well for you, still do what the Lord says to do. Because the first thing that we always hear is, but what if, but what if, but what if? Do not be frightened with any fear. Remain steadfast and obedient to the Lord. Why? Because your ultimate service is not to the Lord, your ultimate service, I'm sorry, is not to your husband. Your ultimate service is not to your husband. Your ultimate service is to the Lord. And it is God who tells us how to behave in such relationships. Okay, so we're finished with that. So what is the point? Dealing with once again, verse number one, in the same way that is unto the wise, even if the husbands mistreat you or don't treat you as they should, nevertheless, this is no excuse to be disobedient or disrespectful. It does not matter. Always be obedient, respectful to your husband. The only time that you don't want to be is when he tells you to do something that is wrong. That is, if it is against the word of God, you do not obey that. But in every other case, be submissive. And he gives the example of holy women of old, and even in particular, Sarah. And ultimately, as she called her own husband, Lord. Can you imagine women acting this way today, especially in America? A very, very rare thing. But nevertheless, it is commanded 
of Christian women. So he continues on in verse number seven with the husband. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of, of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now note it, that was it that he said about the husband, but it is important to see what he says to the husband. As the wife is the wives are commanded to be in obedience to the husbands, the husbands are commanded to be respectful and honorable to their wives. But notice what he says in verse number seven. Husbands directing to them in the same way. Again, that word homoios, that is, don't lose the context of what Peter is talking about. What? When someone is not acting right, when someone is misbehaving and not doing what they're supposed to do, if someone is not is, I'm sorry, is mistreating you. So now as he turns the attention to the husband, see at first he talked about the wife. What is the responsibility of the wife to the husband? To be respectful and obedient, to submit to the husband, even if that husband is not treating her right. Now the table is turned. What is the responsibility to the husband? Watch this. Even if the wife is not acting right, even if the wife is not doing what she's supposed to do. Notice he just said what the wife was supposed to do. Be in submission to your husband. So what happens when you have a loud, cantankerous, and difficult, and disobedient, and rebellious wife? What should the husband do? Notice what he says. Live with her in an understanding way. We are husbands are supposed to be men of wisdom, men of understanding, understanding the difficulties that is within a woman naturally. And we're not going to get into all of what that entails. Once again, we've already talked about what the sinful nature of people. And that's what we all need to see. We all have a sinful nature, whether we are men, there's a sinful nature, whether we have women, there's a sinful nature. And OK, I said I wasn't going to do it, but let me just do it anyway to kind of give you guys a general understanding. And this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and chapter three, when Adam ate of the fruit of the tree, the nature of the man, the husband, the nature of the woman, the wife changed towards each other. Notice there were only two people in the world, the man and the wife. And before sin came, before the eating of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, what? They were both naked observing one another and they were unashamed. But once sin came in, and that is sin nature, was born in both the man as well as the woman, Notice the first thing they began to do with respect to one another. They began to hide from one another. See, it was only two people. They weren't covering themselves up from the animals. They were covering themselves up from each other. There was only to a certain degree did the man want the woman to know himself to be exposed to the woman. And there was only to a certain degree did the woman want it to be naked exposed to the man. So they hid themselves from one another 
even in a spiritual manner, okay? And in this uh, sinful nature that was born, and that's when the Bible talks about uh, the aggressive nature that would be born in the man, that is to, for the man to try to, by force, make the woman do what he wants her to do. He will rule over you. That's that language. He will rule over you. That is by the action of force. He'll try to make you do what he says. But then on the side of the woman, what? She will reach forth her hand towards her husband. In other words, instead of her trying to be submissive, she will try to take the leading role in the relationship. All of this is because of the sin nature. And so the point here is a man should be a creature of wisdom. He should have this understanding. Now, once again, just like it's not easy for a woman in her um a uh, 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 commandment to be obedient and submission to in submission to her own husband, neither is it easy for a man to live in this manner with the woman. Why? You got a sinful flesh too, and you get tired too, and you get you 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 don't want to hear all of the talk. You don't want to, you get sick and tired of all of the nasty attitude for no reason at all. It is understandable. But always remember, by the spirit of the living God, you can. And so therefore, God commands you even here to live with that woman, understanding who and what she is, even of a sinful nature with wisdom. But let's go on. Understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, that is understanding that there is a distinction between the sexes. And I don't care what the stupid world is trying to say today. A man cannot be a woman. A woman cannot be a man. There is by nature of who and what we are, there is a difference. And a man is different from a woman. He is created different from a woman. You see, supposedly, the power of his physical frame. I call it the chest. That is, a man is created to be a creature who protects. And then you look at the breasts of a woman that is designed to give nurture to a child. A woman is designed and created to be a creature of nurturing. By the very physical being, we are different from one another. And so a man needs to recognize the differences between himself and the woman. Not only the, not only the physical differences between a man and a woman, but also the emotional differences between men and women. And this is what it means as a whole when it says a man needs to live with a woman with understanding. And when I say the emotional distinction, once again, that's just simply the reality of our distinction. Because we are different men and women, we have different emotional responses to things. We don't think the same way. We don't respond the same way. We don't act the same way. We don't have the same fears. And sometimes, and I'm not trying to make a defense, but even sometimes women act in the sense of fear. Let me give you a quick example. Oh, just a quick example. 
without a shadow of a doubt, if you if you bring it, say, for instance, an army of men against an army of women, women will be slaughtered. That is the end of the discussion. Men are stronger. Men are faster. Men are more aggressive. This is just the very nature of who and what we are. And so it goes to say a woman knows that physically, simply of her own strength and power, there's nothing that she can do to overtake a man. That's in the common sense. But what she can do is maneuver him, think him, and even to the point and sense of manipulation. And this is usually the case that is done in, in a lot of times it's done in an evil way, but sometimes it's done in a defensive way, trying to protect themselves. But nevertheless, men are to be like Christ. Men are to be forgiving and it's difficult to do. So therefore we go to God. Men are to be forgiving and men are to be understanding that she didn't like you. She doesn't think like you. She's not going to act and respond like you. So therefore try to be gentle and understanding her difference. Okay. Your counterpart. But anyway, and then it simply says to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And it seems here to suggest that this particular woman, this wife, is a fellow believer. And that is to honor her, not just simply as your wife, but also as what? A fellow saint of God. Then it says at the very end of that verse, so that your prayers would not be hindered. And this is extremely important. And notice this application in its immediate context is to men. So therefore, what is he saying? Men, you have a responsibility to live with your wives in a certain way, in a way, in a way of wisdom, in a way of understanding, knowing what she isn't like you. She doesn't think like you and don't expect for her to respond like you because she won't. She won't mentally or emotionally respond. And this is not to say that a woman is not intellectually uh, 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 on par with a man. This is not about intelligence at all. This is about the differences between a man and a woman. But the man has a certain level of responsibility to recognize these things and in failure to do so, in failure to do so, what happens? When the husband begins to pray, his prayers are hindered. There will be a spiritual disturbance between you and God. And when you get on your knees, now listen, husband, this is why this is so important. When you get on your knees, all of a sudden, you can't pray right. Your thoughts are not right. And I understand you'll have thoughts about difficulties in your marriage or whatever. But nevertheless, there is a spiritual hindrance to God hearing you. So therefore, what? It becomes a warning for men to obey this. Live in this understanding way with their wives. Lest when you yourself begin to pray to God, it's like, mm, mm. 
And we don't want any of that. So now let's uh, sum this part up. So all he's simply saying here, for the wife, be in subjection to your husband, even if the husband is a difficult man. And then he just simply flips the coin. It says, husband, live in an understanding way with your wife. What? Even if she herself is difficult as well. But nevertheless, if the wife is obeying the word of God, she'll be in submission. And if the husband is obeying the word of God, he'll be living in an understanding way. Understanding, protecting his wife. Okay, then he simply says, he sums it up as he goes into verse number eight. He says, to sum up, literally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, so then he be, he just literally sums it up. And this summation seems to extend not only to what the husband and the wife, but even also to what the Christian as a whole, because notice he even began it from the slaves and the relationships of the slaves to the master. What? The slaves should be obedient, submit to their own masters, even to their masters who are harsh. Their wives should submit to their own husband, even to what? Husbands who are difficult. And the husbands should live in a way of wisdom with their own wives, even to wives that are difficult themselves. But he said, but the bottom line is this. All of God's people should put this kind of mind on to live in a harmonious way. And I like that idea. Simply live in harmony with each other. So that takes out the sense of self-serving, self-willed, and a rebellious nature and attitude. Sympathetic. And the idea of sympathetic brings in this, in this sense of a spirit of forgiveness. Brotherly, kind-hearted, humble, in spirit. And I think that's one of the most important things of all that Peter put here, being humble of spirit, because that's the problem. It is our pride, our pride in each of these relationship factors that we talked about, whether slaves, that is employee to employer, slaves, or whether wife to husband being in submission or husband uh, taking note of the wise distinction from him. The problem is pride. We don't want to get off of our high horse and humble ourselves and do what the Lord would say to do. We always want to find a reason. And that's what he's going to talk about as he continues on here. But what I'm saying, what Peter is saying here is have the spirit of humility in the sense that you will obey what the Lord has told you to obey. You will do Live how the Lord, if your wife, do that. If your husband, 
do that. If you're a slave or if you're an employee, you work for somebody, you do that. You do what the Lord has told you to do. What? Nine. Remember what I was just saying? Because we can always find a reason for not doing what the Lord told us to do. The woman always finds a reason for not obeying her husband. The employee always finds a reason for not doing what the supervisor or the employer tells them what to do. The husband always finds a reason for mistreating his wife. What? Not returning evil for evil, insult for insult. In other words, well, they didn't do right. And so you know what? Well, I ain't going to do what the Lord told me to do towards them either. Why? They didn't do what the Lord told them to do towards me. So I'm not going to do what the Lord told me to do towards them. Or the wife says to what? My husband, he treat me, he ain't treat, he ain't treat me like the Lord said to me. So guess what? I'm not going to do what he says. No, not returning evil for evil. And the husband, well, she ain't gonna obey me and she don't do what I tell her to do, but she talks too much and she always, she just got this nasty attitude all the time. So therefore, forget her. And I just treat her all kind of way and I treat her harsh and I treat her cruel. No, not trading insult for insult. We always find a way we find a reason to do what God told us not to do. But the very nature and element of Peter's letter is what? Even when you are being mistreated, when they are not treating you right, you still do what the Lord told you to do so that you might please God. And that's why he goes and quotes, I believe this is Psalm 34, when he begins to quote this next part in verses number 10 through 12, for the one who desires life to love and to see good days. In other words, because the point is, if you want things to go well with you, then you should live in obedience to God. Whether you are that slave or whether you are that wife or whether you are that husband, if you want things to go well for you, then live obediently to the commands of God. Okay. And that's enough said about that. So let's go to verse number 13. I think we may be able to finish this. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, let's look at this. This is beautiful. So notice he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for good? So he says, but he, he's in the normal case. If you are trying to do good, people will not mistreat you. Taking us all the way back, all the way back to what Peter said earlier about honoring government officials. If you do what is right in the sight of the government, in the sight of the governor, the mayor, in the sight of the police, why will they harm you? You know, and and, and I really don't want to get into this, but I kind of find myself 
almost gravitating to this. I mean, always these issues with the police, always these issues with the police. Why don't you just simply with treat the police with respect? Do what the police ask you to do. If they come behind you, pull over, stop, have your hands out where they can see where the police don't have to be on edge. If they ask you to show your license and your registrations and all of that, just simply show it to them and talk to them respectful. This is what Peter was talking about earlier, honoring those who have been sent by the king, that is, by the ruling authorities. And and even if for some reason you get put under arrest, he tells you, get out of the car, put your hands behind your back, then get out of the car, put your hands behind your back, obey the government officials, okay? But the whole point, um, so that's just simply an example because, again, what did he say? Who is there to harm you if you do what is right if you prove zealous, and I like that idea, you really are determined trying to do what is right. The common, the common case, the normal case is when people see that you're trying to do the right thing, they're not going to harm you. Whether it's the government officials or one sent by them or even what? from the master to the servant. If the master sees that the servant is really trying to do right and please him, he's not going to be harsh to the servant in the normal case. If your employer see you really trying to do good, you come in, work on time, and you may even leave late, and you're trying to do the things that's right on the job, and you really trying to give it your all and do a good job for your boss or for your supervisor, he said, well, why would they mistreat you if you're trying to do what is right? Now, let's bring the case even further down. So you got the husband, right? And the wife is so good. Nobody said a quiet, a humble spirit, submissive to her husband. It's difficult for him to continue to mistreat you. And that's what he's trying to say. It's uncommon for that, uh, that type of behavior. And even for the husband, when you try to do right towards your wife. It's uncommon for her not to recognize he is trying to be good. That So who is he who will harm you? So the common case, that's what he's trying to make in verse number 13. The common case is when you're trying to do right and good toward these particular entities, they usually respond in a good way. But there are times even when you are doing right, that's verse number 14, even when you are doing right, they still will not act right. They still will not respond rightly towards you. They won't treat you right. Even, even every time when the master, uh, the say for instance, let's start from the top again. Some, you got bad police out there and they still mistreat you. But the point of first Peter, once again, you still be in submission to them. You have husbands, wives who still, even though you do everything that God tells you to do towards them and you are submissive, you have a quiet spirit with your husband, still he is an awful man. Yet you do what is right in the sight of God. And in the same sense on the reverse coin for the husband, yet you do what is right in the sight of God as it pertains to how you should treat your wife. So, but what does it say? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, see, even if you are, you, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and they still mistreating you, 
What does he say in verse number 14? Take this into your spirit. You are blessed. The response of heaven is, as long as you are doing what God has commanded you to do, God is not so much looking at the other person as much as he's looking at you. And what is he saying as he's looking at you, as he's looking at you, uh, as you deal with the government, the police, as he's looking at you, wife, as you're dealing with the husband and the husband, as he's dealing with the wife, and you trying to do what God wants you to do, even if they're acting a fool, you are blessed. And he says, well, don't fear their intimidation and don't be troubled. So whether it's the government or whether it's some other faction, your husband, wife, or what, don't be afraid, but do what? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. I like that. Sanctify means to set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord. What does that mean? Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God and my Savior. I am living in this manner to please him. You know, okay, fine. My husband is your is a bushwhack, but still, I'm not living for the ultimate pleasure of my husband. I'm living for the ultimate pleasure of Jesus. Why? Because he indeed is my Lord. Notice, sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to make a defense to anybody that asks you for account of the hope that is in you with a spirit of gentleness and reverence. That is, why? So it says, let me say it this way. Girl, ain't no way in the world I'd be acting like that towards my man. Why in the world you do that? And she says, because I love the Lord. And because as a Christian woman, I'm supposed to live this way. And then one of your male friends say to you, man, I'm, ain't no way in the world I'd be putting up with that. And you know, I get out all this lip and all this talking and all this nasty attitude day in and day out. I'd have been left up or I'd have been knocked her out. No, man, I don't act like that. And you know the reason why I'm not going to act like that? Because I am a Christian man. And for the love of my Lord Jesus, I understand I'm going to live with my wife in a certain way. Try to understand who she is and understand where she's coming from, even if she's acting a fool, right? I'm going to still try to live in such a way that pleases the Lord. So the point is, the world will look at you and how you're behaving and say, you're a fool. Ain't no way in the world. Now, this, this is what the world will say about you. Ain't no way in the world I will let them run all over me. I am nobody's rug. I ain't nobody's something that you can take and wipe your feet on. You ain't going to walk all over me. You're going to treat me like this. And if you don't, I'm going to get you straight. And if you don't, I'm going to do this. And if you don't, but notice what Peter said once again, saints, what do not give what render return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But instead of doing that, paying back evil for evil, sanctify Christ in your heart. Set him apart. Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And the ultimate sense is I'm going to live in this way towards whatever entity we've been talking about, whether it's the government, the police, my husband, 
my wife, or whatever. I'm going to live in this manner to please my Lord. And I want the world to see there is a difference in how a Christian man or woman lives in this world. I want the world to see it by my conduct and not simply by my preaching. Okay. Verse number 17. Let's bring it to a close. For it is better. Uh, Oh, verse number 16. Let me deal with that before we get into 17. And in keeping a good conscience, so in the thing that in which you are slandered. I like that part when it says in keeping a good conscience. One thing that you know, whether and, and just remember, as we're working through all of this in a holistic sense, whether you are a slave or employee or husband or wife or whatever you might be, whatever your position or status in life may be. You know how you have been living. And so therefore, your own conscience will either approve or disapprove of your conduct. Wise, in the sense that Peter has been talking about what? Being in submission to your husband. What is your attitude towards that? What is your behavior in that respect? Have you been doing that? Do you do that? Or are you repulsed in that? And if you are repulsed in that and name yourself, call yourself a Christian, you cannot possibly have a good conscience when faced by the word of God. You see it now? When the word of God comes, it affects your conscience and you know whether or not you have been living this way. Wife. You know whether or not you've been in submission to your husband and whether or not you have a quiet spirit or whether you are contentious, rebellious and, and boisterous and loud and disobedience. And you can't tell you a doggone thing. Your conscience will bear you witness and husband, your conscience will bear you witness on whether or not you have been mistreating your wife. Can you say you have been good to her? She may have been awful. And sometimes they are awful. And sometimes they say awful and hurtful things. But can you say, whomever you may be, husband, wife, or whatever, can you say, but I know I still treated them right. I did them the way that God told me to treat them. And that's what he talks about. Verse 16, keeping a good conscience. Why? So when they talk about you, whether it's the world that's talking about you, your, your husband is treating you, your wife is being rebellion and saying all kinds of evil things about you, whoever it is that's slandering you, you still have a good conscience in knowing that you have done what is right so that what those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ will ultimately be put to shame. You keep doing what the Lord told you to do. And one day you will be vindicated. One day Jesus will say unto you, well done. And trust me, he'll deal with them next. Everybody will have their turn at the judgment seat of Christ, at their turn at the judgment seat of Christ. You want to have your turn. What does the Bible say? For judgment must begin with the house of God. The saints of God will be judged first. But when God gets through with us, 
Trust me, he's going to turn his attention on the unbelievers, on those who will not obey his word. And trust me, it would be better. It would be better had they been like us than they had they been rebellious, disobedient, and repugnant to God's word. But anyway, enough of that. So that's the idea. Verse number 17. So he continues the idea because the things that Peter has been saying is, I understand that they are difficult. And that's kind of like me with my, my words and saying, I understand. <laughs> but it's difficult to do these things. But nevertheless, it is required for God's people. There is no other way. There's no other way for the slave, for the employee. There is no other way for the wife. There is no other way for the husband. And so still in this sinful world and dealing with sinful people, you'll suffer. And so this goes to once again, uh, build on that foundation of Peter's letter here of suffering the just suffering unjustly while they are trying to obey Jesus Christ. And now Peter's begin to, is about to begin to open up another door, an example of how Jesus Christ himself is that example. Early, he talked about Jesus being the example. When he talked about the slavery issue, remember that? How Jesus was the example of the just suffering for the unjust. And now, once again, he's going to emphasize the fact that Jesus himself is the ultimate example for Christians, that we, as even as he suffered unjustly, we too should be ready to suffer unjustly. 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Why? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Okay, so now he continues on. What? You live right in all of the situations that we were just talking about. Because it is better if it is God's will. Because no, if, if God should will it, nothing happens to the believer outside of the will of God. So God is aware of what you're going through and God is watching and God knows. So, but it is still better if we suffer what is doing right than, well, than rather we suffer what is doing wrong. And he talked about that earlier. You don't want to suffer because of something you did wrong and bear that patiently. No, you want to suffer and even bear patiently for doing what is right. Why? This finds pleasure in the sight of God. And then he brings that ultimate example in verse number 18, for Jesus Christ is that ultimate example of suffering. And to what point 
to what degree did Jesus suffer unjustly? He suffered to the point of death. And so this kind of speaks uh, to, to that sense of how we should be willing to suffer even to the point of death for ourselves. But anyway, um, the just for the unjust and his suffering was a suffering with purpose that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit that Jesus dying in the flesh, but alive spiritually, even speaking towards to his resurrection of the dead as he's going to start dealing with here. But anyway, but the point is of Jesus is being Jesus being an example of suffering for the believer. And Jesus, once again, one who did no wrong. And even as Peter said earlier, there was no deceit in his mouth. So none of us can say that. None of us can say we are sinless and we have never said anything wrong. So therefore, we are suffering so wrong, so wrong, so wrong. But Jesus suffered so wrong, so wrong, so wrong. Why? He never did a single sin and he never said anything wrong. So when he suffered, it indeed was very wrong. Okay. But he talked about Jesus in his sufferings. But also he begins to talk about in verse number 19 and 20, something that has been uh, oftentimes misunderstood as a preaching of the gospel. And that is people have understood verse 19 that Jesus, when he died, that the spirit of the Lord went into Sheol, the place of the dead, into hell and preached to sinners and gave them a chance to receive the gospel. But this is not the case. He did not use the word which is the term, Greek term, that is used to preach the gospel. He used the term kruzo, which means to declare something, to declare something, okay? So Jesus did not go into the place of spirits to, to the dead to preach the gospel so that those who hear may have a chance to respond and be saved. He went into the place of the dead and declared a message. And the context here is he declared a message of victory. What? Even though Jesus was obedient to his father, he was obedient to the point of death for God sent his son into the world to die. But in the death of Jesus, it was his victory over sin, his victory over sinners. So what did it say? It speaks of what Peter is comparing is he is comparing a time and an age of great disobedience, a time and an age of great disobedience. We see that in Genesis chapter six through eight, when there was the flood of Noah and God had said, I hate, I made man. Why? The very thoughts of his heart are only evil continuously. All day long, men only did evil and they rebelled against God. They rebelled against the order of God. And let's look at the context of Peter. No one was in submission. No one wanted to do what was right in the sight of God. But there were people that were so consumed with disobedience and rebellions that only eight people were saved from the flood waters of judgment. 
the world itself was full of disobedience to God. And so what? In their disobedience. So what did Jesus do? And what he's talking about here in which Jesus would have made proclamation to the spirit. These are human beings, human beings, the spirits in prison who were disobedient during the time of Noah, that great period of disobedience. Jesus went and said to them that his sufferings, his sufferings brought victory. And even so, this is the message for the believer now. The message of Jesus is what? Even in suffering, there is great victory. So Jesus in dying on the cross, remember his final words, it is finished. These were not words of sadness. These were words of joy. These were words to say, I have completed what the father has wanted me to complete. And therefore, when he went down into Hades, to those places where those people who were disobedient and rebellious, he declared to them victory. And it became the ultimate assurance that one day they will be judged. But in the same sense that Jesus' suffering became victory, it also became great joy and overcoming. That is, notice what it says. Who is Jesus after preaching this message to those disobedient? What happened? Jesus did not remain dead. He resurrected from the dead. And now he is where? At the right hand of God. What? Having gone into heaven. Now let's look at Jesus. Is Jesus now suffering unjustly? No. He is now resurrected from the dead. And what did he declare? All authority, all power in heaven and in earth is given unto me. What did it say? Have after having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers are now subjected to him. He now has the victory. He now has overcome, although one time at one period in his life, he had to suffer these things. He had to suffer the, the indignation. He had to suffer the mistreatment of others. But what did he do? He held his head high. He maintained his obedience toward God and he suffered willingly. And what was the end result? His sufferings ended in exaltation. So Jesus becomes an example of both what to the Christian today. He put, becomes the example of suffering and the example of later exaltation. What, so, what is we, so what is he saying? What is Peter trying to say? And let me end it and say it this way. So whether it's for a slave who's being mistreated by the employee or the employer, uh, being, uh, um, uh, you being mistreated by your supervisor for your boss or for the wife who is obeying her husband and yet is being mistreated by him or the husband with the difficult wife, but yet he's trying to live with the wife in wisdom, even though you are suffering now in this life just like Jesus did. You too can proclaim victory one day. Why? Because as the Lord himself was resurrected to exaltation, so you too will be resurrected to exaltation. 
the troubles in this life will end, but make certain that you live in a way that pleases the Lord. Okay, that ends our discussion in First Peter chapter 3, and we thank the Lord for that. And in a nutshell, what was Peter simply trying to say? It is the very heart of his letter, practical living. And this is what I'm trying to get you guys to see. It's not enough to go to church, raise your hand, sing in the choir, and all of these things. It is the life that you live from day to day. And this life is a challenging life. And many times, even oftentimes, this life will demand that you suffer. Notice what Peter said, that even if it be that by the will of God that you should suffer, still be obedient, live a life that is pleasing to God. What? On your job, be obedient and submissive to those who have the rule over you on your job, even if they don't act and treat you right. If you're a wife, be obedient to your husband, even if he doesn't treat you right. But let it be your conduct of humility and respect that wins him over to Christ and not all of the yip, yip, yippity, yap. That will never win your husband to Christ. And husband, even if you got a wife that is rebellious, difficult, Still, you are required to be a man of wisdom, to understand the difficulties, between the differences between a man and a woman, and to understand how things can be with women, to live with a wife in understanding, recognizing that she is a weaker vessel, deserving of your protection, and God expects you to live this way. And the final last, what did he say? And do not live giving what? Evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And I like that part. That is to simply say that, well, they didn't do what they were supposed to do and they didn't treat me this way. So therefore, I ain't going to treat them this way. No. The whole point of verse Peter is even if they don't treat you this way, you still do these things. Why? Jesus himself becomes the ultimate example. And even though you might suffer in keeping these commandments, even though you might suffer in this life, this life is not the end of it. One day you'll be with Christ and he will bless you and he will exalt you for your obedience to him. Sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. I'm living this way so that I can please my Lord, not for the pleasure of men, but for the pleasure of Jesus. Okay. All right. Let's give us a prayer, guys. Lord, we do thank you for your word today in First Peter. And even as we've been talking, we pray for relationships because that's basically the root and center of what we've been discussing today, relationships, primarily the relationships between husband and wife. And I would dare say the most difficult of all relationships. But bless, Lord, we do pray for all women who name the name of Jesus, that they might be obedient. And ladies, you know, remember what Peter said? Do you have a good conscience? You know whether or not you live this way. You know whether or not that this is, I want to live in such a way to please God. And that's your mindset. You know that. And you know if you are something otherwise. If you are, 
repent. You say, Lord, forgive me. I have not been the kind of woman that you want to be, the kind of wife, but I do want to be a holy woman. I want to be like the women of old. I want to be like Sarah. And I know my husband can be an awful, awful little tyrant, but help me to respond to my husband like you would have me to. And, and husband, you also know if you've been mistreating your wife and you've been harsh and unforgiving, unrelenting towards your wife and don't treat her with respect and honor, then you need to repent as well. Father, give me a mind and give me a heart to love my wife like Christ loved the church and to be forgiving and to be honorable and respectful, to have wisdom in myself, to understand that she has an emotional response and she has fears that are different from my own. And there'll be times when she may never ask me, ask me of my forgiveness and they'll say, forgive me for my behavior, but let me have the wherewithal to forgive her anyway. And help us to live as the Bible says in the end, what? harmoniously live peaceful together and to live as the Lord Jesus would have us to live. Forgive us of all of our pride because the reason why we do not live this way, it is because of pride. That's why Peter says, live in humility. We all want to, well, they don't act right towards me and I don't want to act towards them. No, live in humility so that we all if we, are, if we are believers in Christ Jesus, we want to please Jesus and his coming, knowing what? That this suffering is only for a moment. I'm living my life for a new day. And in that day, my master would tell me, I am so pleased with you. Okay, baby. All right, guys, thank you for joining me with that. If you can say that you have been blessed in these teachings, uh, will you support this ministry so that we can continue bringing them to you? There is always a link in the description that you can use to support this ministry. And for those of you who have supported this ministry, I would say thank you for all that you do. Okay, guys, thanks for joining me and see you next time.